Today, we've got Aaron Cavan with us. Aaron um, is a pastor at Life Community Church in Quincy. They also have a location in the Braintree area. But I love, I can't say it enough, I love what God is doing through Aaron and Life Community. In fact, if for some reason God were to relocate you to Quincy, I would say go find Life Community. Or if you know somebody that needs a church in Quincy, send them to Life Community. Love what God's doing in them. He's going to share the word with us today. Many of you guys know I've had the opportunity to oversee 42 summer interns, summer missionaries this summer. One of our teams is at Life Community. So we've got to interact this summer as well. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for Aaron, but I want to ask you to pray a prayer with me. Would you pray this? Would you pray, God, say whatever you want to say and do whatever you want to do in my life today? I want to challenge you to pray that. I'm going to pray that for us. I'm going to pray for Aaron as he delivers the word to us today. Father, God, we want to hear from you. So we ask, say whatever you want to say to us today. Open our ears to hear that and do whatever you want to do in our life today. God, our lives are yours. We're here because you've given us breath today. So God, we want to steward our lives. We want to worship. Lead us today, God. And God, I pray for Aaron. God, I pray as he opens and leads us to your word, as he challenges us, God, would your spirit work in and through him today to accomplish your kingdom purposes in our city. God, we pray that, trusting that you're going to work in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Our children, you can slide out to be with our Redemption Kids volunteers. If you're new with a child, just follow our volunteers to the back, and they'll get you squared away there. And then Aaron, lead us, brother. Eager to hear. Hey, uh, I'm so glad to be here with you guys today. Um, my, uh, my wife and I and our two boys at the time moved to Quincy, Massachusetts back in 2007 uh, to start Life Community Church. We started it in 2008. And so this September will be 11 years since we started uh, Life Community Church. And so uh, by God's grace, he's continued to work in a powerful way. Uh, but we also know uh, what it looks like to be portable. We were portable for eight years in elementary and middle schools with no AC. Uh, and so I get it. Uh, it is hot and swampy is what it is. Uh, but what I would say often is, listen, we got the greatest thing in the world. We have Jesus Christ. And if we have JC, then we don't need AC. You know what I'm saying? So just repeat, repeat that to yourself. Say it as many times as you got to say it to get through the next several minutes. And we're going to do this together, all right? Uh, so I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, when when uh, Tanner reached out to me, said that you guys are going to be in the Old Testament, uh, man, I went right to the book of Exodus. We preached a series through the book of Exodus at our church. We were in the book of Exodus for about 16 months at Life Community. Really powerful time together. And just to give you a little bit of uh, context, um, my wife and I have been married for uh, uh, 19 years. We're in our 20th year of marriage. Uh, we have five boys. My oldest son, Brendan, is here with me. He's 16. Uh, and so... Uh, we love being able to do ministry and do life together. And, uh, and so God has been gracious to us. He's been good to us. And um, a, a few years ago, um, I, I, I feel like, like most of my life I've struggled uh, on the spectrum of anxiety and, and uh, how that begins to take over kind of me emotionally, the way I think. Um, I become very kind of skeptical of people. And um, that's something that's kind of existed my entire life. When we began the series in Exodus, it was during a time in my life, back in 2015, 2016, where I was going through what I can only explain is probably the darkest, deepest place of anxiety that I could have possibly been. Uh, and so as context for that, it's interesting because the book of Exodus is all about a bunch, a nation of slaves being set free and liberated by God. And so here I was every single week coming into this sweaty, hot middle school auditorium and preaching about being liberated and set free from what you're enslaved to. And yet it was almost impossible for me to do that week after week because I felt so crippled and enslaved by my anxiety. And God graciously used that time to allow me every single Sunday, week in and week out, to proclaim truth over my life as well as the lives of others, to remind myself of what's actually true, even in those moments where my heart was struggling to believe what was true. Uh, and so it was a really great time for us. And so if I could sum up the book of Exodus in one statement, it would be liberated for God's mission. If you could take the entire book of Exodus and sum it up, I would sum it up as being liberated for God's mess, uh, mission. It contains an incredible story about a terrible king 
who seeks to build a powerful empire in large part through the forced labor of the Israelite people, God's people. Uh, They are victims of bondage, slavery, and even genocide. Until God shows up and redeems his people, setting them free, getting involved in their mess, defeating the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and leading them out of bondage to worship him as the one true better king and to be his ambassadors in the world for his glory so that the world would know just who this God truly is. And this is what Exodus is all about. This is what we see in Exodus 19, three through six. God reveals to Moses. He says, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So as they were going through this period of time, they've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They have generation after generation that's passed along these promises and these stories. And as God shows up to deliver them, he wants Moses to constantly remind them that God wants to set you free from your past because he's determined your future. He's got a place he wants to take you. He's got a space he wants you to go. He wants you to have an impact in the world and become a kingdom of priests, making his goodness and his power and his glory known in all of the nations. So he's going to set you free for that purpose. Imagine the impact it would have on a city, a city like Medford or a city like Quincy, Imagine the impact it would have in our cities if we were truly set free to live as God's new covenant people filled with his spirit, living on mission for his glory. This is what it means to be liberated for God's mission. Imagine what it would mean to be set free. The book of Exodus can be broken down into three sections. The first is redemption, the second is covenant, and the third is worship. Redemption, covenant, worship. Now, these three divisions are a powerful picture of how God liberates us in Christ. Starting with redemption, the first section of Exodus gives us a great picture of what it means to be saved, to be delivered from our sin, and to be set free for the mission of God. This is why we see in the beginning of Exodus the establishment of this sacrificial system, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, substitutionary atonement, the innocent pays the price for the guilty, Even walking through the Red Sea is a powerful picture that we see come up later in the New Testament, what it looks like to put our faith in Jesus and literally to walk through the valley of death, through the waters of death, and to come out unscathed on the other side. So we see a beautiful picture of how God saves us and redeems us in the first part of Exodus. The rest of the book gives us a great picture of the Christian life. Now that we've been set free, now that we've been saved, now that we've been liberated, it gives us a powerful picture of our sanctification, the process whereby God is making us look more and more like Jesus every day. He uses circumstances and conflict and community and even discipline when necessary. In other words, we get a great picture of Christians in the church now by looking at the nation of Israel in the wilderness then. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when he says, we too pass through the Red Sea, through the desert, across the Jordan, into the promised land. With Israel, we fall into doubt and unbelief and through punishment and repentance experience again God's help and faithfulness. All this is not mere reverie, but holy, godly reality. We are torn out of our own existence and set down in the midst of our holy history of God on earth. There, God dealt with us, and there he still deals with us, our needs and our sins in judgment and in grace. Their story is our story. Some people look at the Bible and they want to separate it, and they want to make it a a, a book of wise teachings sprinkled throughout. The reality is the Bible is much better than that. Some of us look at it and we say, the Bible's just a bunch of wise teachings and it's got these stories kind of sprinkled throughout to illustrate the teachings. But it's so much better than that. The Bible is one big true story, Genesis to Revelation, and it's one big story with teaching sprinkled throughout to illustrate the story. 
And I got to be honest with you, most of us read the Bible wrong when we come to the Bible thinking it's a story about us. The Bible's not a story about us and what we do. The Bible's a story about God and what he's done. So what's, what's true is that all of this from Genesis to Revelation is leading us somewhere. It reminds us that God is actively involved in our life. The first two chapters in Genesis, they paint a picture of what life was supposed to be. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22, show us what life will be again. And everything in between is a story of God breaking into human history to rescue, redeem, and restore humanity through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the entire Bible's about. So all of it points to that. The real question for God's people then after being set free from Egypt, after walking through the Red Sea, now being established as a people set apart, set apart for his own possession, the real question for God's people then and his people today is do we really trust God at his word? Do I actually trust God's covenant with his people is a major theme all throughout the book of Exodus. But it's interesting, it doesn't start in the book of Exodus. It actually starts in Genesis. God forms a unique relationship with a man named Abraham. And he forms a covenant with him. He promises him that his offspring will be a mighty nation, that he would bless them and defend them, that he would always be their God, and that the entire earth would be blessed through Abraham's family. This is what a covenant is. It's the deepest form of an agreement between two people. It's a promise. Hundreds of years later, it would be this same covenant that would drive God to make good on his promise and deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. This was not a surprise to God. 400 years of slavery in Egypt was not a surprise to God. And to be honest, it wasn't a surprise to Abraham either. In Genesis 15, 13 and 14, God tells him this is going to happen. In Genesis 15, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So when this happens to the nation of Israel, they shouldn't be shocked because God told them this was going to happen. He, said, he then says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. He promises them that they're going to go through 400 years of slavery, but he also promises that that's not the end of the story. That he's going to deliver them and he's going to set them free. Even when everything seemed like it was out of control, time and time again, we see that everything was still going according to God's plan. Even though they looked around them and thought, how could any of this be in accordance with God's plan? Things seemed decidedly out of control. But even though they were out of control, they were never out of accordance with God's plan. And this is what it means for God to covenant with his people. It means, listen, don't miss this. It means God will always keep his promise. Now, and forever. He's a covenant-keeping God. Oftentimes when we read back in the Old Testament and we see that the things in the Old Testament may not be binding on us, but the things in the Old Testament are applicable to us. In other words, what we see is that doesn't just reveal a part of God's nature for that particular time. It reveals an aspect of God's nature for eternity. So if God was a covenant-keeping God then, then what do we know about God now? He's still a God who keeps his promises. He hasn't changed. He hasn't budged. And now that he's made good on his promise to protect his people, he wants to establish a covenant with this new generation of Israelites. He's promised he would rescue them. He did what he said he would do. And now he wants to establish this covenant with this new generation of Israelites. He promises to provide for them always, to give them laws to live by, to show them how to live holy lives, better lives. In other words, they were going to be his representatives in the world. They were going to show the world what it looked like to live as God's people. And so God gives them everything they need in order to do that. Now, spoiler alert, if you've never read the Old Testament, they're terrible at this. The Israelites, I mean. 
this idea of keeping their promises and covenanting and doing what they said they would do, over and over and over again, what we see throughout the scriptures is that God is incredibly faithful and that mankind is incredibly unfaithful. And the nation of Israel shows us this. They're not great at it. They're terrible at it. They were barely off the beach. Listen, imagine what they saw. All the plagues, the powerful plagues that God brings. By the way, if you go back and you study those, many of those plagues that God brought were signs and imagery that were directly thrown in the face of the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped to show them, you've made this a God. I want you to know I'm the one true God. All these powerful things. And, and, and at the end of it, while the nation of Egypt is literally closing in on them, the armies of Pharaoh are going to destroy and wipe out this nation of Israel, God parts the Red Sea. He makes a body of water split up so that they walk through on dry ground. So this is what, this isn't like 50 years ago. It's like 50 minutes ago. Like they haven't been past the Red Sea very long. They still got sand in their toes. They haven't been past the Red Sea for very long at all. They're still standing there, sand in their toes, and they're already beginning to grumble and complain in their newfound freedom. All that God has accomplished and demonstrated to set them free. And it doesn't take very long for them to start to grumble and complain. Man, I gotta be honest with you, I am super glad this was only applicable to people in the Old Testament. I am so glad that we don't act like this ever today. Look what happens. They're barely past the Red Sea. Then Moses, this is the text we'll focus on this morning, Exodus 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Three days. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water, and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. God just wanted them to trust him. He just wanted them to trust that he'll keep his promises. But at the first sign of opposition, they begin to doubt whether or not he could be trusted. But God proved over and over and over again that he keeps his promises, that he can be trusted. I want to take a couple of principles that we could pull from this and apply it to our own lives. Because I think we relate to these people far more than most of us would care to admit. We've seen God work and do the miraculous in our life. We've seen God work and do the miraculous in the lives of people around us. We've seen God come through and prove that what the scripture says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We've watched it happen. I don't know you personally, But I guarantee you, I'm looking at sitting miracles right now. People whose lives have been transformed by the power of God in an unexplainable way, so much so that you gotta step back and say, only God could have done that. And yet something comes along that's out of our foresight or beyond our control, and we start to get anxious and worry, take matters into our own hands, assess our situation, And begin to complain. So what I want to do is I want to look through what it means to trust God. I want to start with number one. As we look at this passage, trusting God is a faith issue. Trusting God is a faith issue. God's covenant with Israel was proof that they were not only freed from their past. Listen, don't miss this. His covenant-keeping promises 
The work he did to redeem them in their past was proof, proof positive that they were secure in their future. The fact that God's a covenant-keeping God was proof that they were not only freed from their past, but they were secure in their future. The question is, would they believe it? How are you going to complain? <laughs> they just watched God take water and make it stand up. Notice what their first complaint is when they get past that. Oh, this water tastes bitter. Now what are we supposed to do? I don't know. Maybe ask the God who obviously controls water. Isn't that crazy? What they just witnessed God do with this water, and now the first complaint they have is something to do with water. It's like my kids. I got five kids. My oldest is 16, then I have a 14-year-old, then a 10, 8, and 6-year-old. At any given time, any of my kids have come to me and they've said these words, Daddy, I'm starving. Really? Really? You're, oh, you're starving? First of all, I'm like, you don't even know. <laughs> you don't even know how starvation works. If you can tell me you're starving, you're not starving. <laughs> but here's what's crazy. Every time, you know what I do? I take them back to the past. I said, let me ask you a question. Have you been hungry your whole life? Yes. Have I ever not fed you? Have you ever gone a day without having all the food you need to eat? It may not be your favorite thing, but there's plenty of it. I remember when I took my son Brendan, I, don't, I know he won't mind me telling the story. I took my son Brendan, he was probably like 12, 11, 12 years of age or whatever at the time. We go to the pediatrician's office. We're both sitting in there. Pediatrician comes in. We've known her for years. She's been our pediatrician for all of our kids. She comes in and she's like, so I'm a little concerned about his weight. Um, this is like a time in his life where he should really be like, you know, gaining a lot more weight. So she looks at him and she goes, do you, like, are you getting enough to eat? And he says, well, sometimes I go to bed hungry. That's what he says. She goes, okay, writes on her little clipboard and walks out of the room. As far as I know, DCF's coming back with her. I looked at my son, I said, what are you talking about? You can't tell her you go to bed hungry. What has that ever happened? You want a sandwich? Eat a sandwich, dude. There's a bag of chips. Have some cereal. I don't care. What have you ever not had food to eat? The point is we look at that and it seems so ridiculous. My kids will come and complain about starving and they've never gone hungry. And yet we do the same thing God has provided over and over and over again. And yet as soon as we see the first sight of pain, the first sight of conflict, the first sight of something out of our control, we forget all about all the times God's provided and we start worrying about our future, forgetting about our past. It's a faith issue. I believed he would do it then, and I'm believing he'll do it now. I love the story in Mark chapter 9. One of the dads uh, that we see come, up, come on the scene, it's, it's, this dad comes up, he's got his son with him, and his son is possessed by demons. And this demon has tried to cast him into fires and cast him into water. I mean, imagine as a parent, the fear that would grip you, the, the heart, this is all you've seen. And he comes to Jesus and he says, if you, if you could just speak a word, if you could imagine how desperate you would be. You've seen and heard this man can do the miraculous. Your son is hurting and broken and you come to him and you say, if you can only just speak a word, if you can set him free, do what you can. And look at Jesus' response to him. In Mark chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, if you can, if you can, he says, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. All things. All things are possible for one who believes. And look what the dad's response is. I resonate with this. 
Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I I believe, but help my unbelief. Oh, that's so good. Because I think we make the mistake sometimes of thinking that the opposite of belief is doubt. The opposite of belief isn't doubt. We're not Jesus, so we have doubt. And it's a very biblical thing to go to God and say, I believe, but I'm struggling to believe. I believe the gospel's true, but I'm having a hard time believing in the midst of this doubt and anxiety or fear or depression or brokenness or this difficult circumstance or my family's falling apart. I believe and I'm, I'm hanging by a thread, but I need you to help me in my unbelief. The opposite of belief is not doubt. Do you know what the opposite of belief is? It's pride. So when those doubts and fears creep in, it's just reminding you of an area where God wants to continue saving you. He's reminding you of areas of unbelief in your life so that you can identify where your heart has been misaligned, grow in your faith, and trust God more today than you did yesterday. First of all, trusting God is a faith issue. Second of all, trusting God is a control issue. Here we go. Anybody in here struggle with control? I, I gotta be honest with you, I've been pastoring for almost 20 years. I can't tell you the amount of counseling appointments I've had. Um, y'all struggle with it. Everybody does. I haven't met the person yet. Some of you have more extreme cases of it, but everybody wants to control things. And this is actually the deep-rooted idol behind anxiety. It's one of the things I've discovered. You know what anxiety is rooted in? Anxiety is rooted in the fear of the unknown. It means that I'm believing the lie in that moment that I'm in control, but things are out of control, and that makes me afraid. But what's the lie I've believed? The first lie I believed is not that things are out of control. The first lie I've believed is that I'm actually in control. See, trusting God is a control issue. God made good on his promises in Egypt, and he would make good on his promises in the wilderness and in the promised land. Not only would God make good on his promises, but his promises would be better than they could have ever possibly imagined. They just couldn't wait. They had to take matters into their own hands, start assessing their situation, and instead of trusting God, they started complaining to Moses. So Moses simply asks God and he graciously provides for them a source of water. Can we just pause there for a second? Notice what the difference was. They complained to Moses. Moses prayed to God. If you don't know what else to do, start with prayer. Listen, this isn't primarily about anxiety, but it certainly is a, a lot to do with that. And if you're anxious or afraid or you're fearful of things that are out of your control, it's really helpful for you to know in that moment that the best way out of that is to begin to pray. One of the guys that's written so much material on it that's been super helpful to me is a guy by the name of Dr. Ed Welch. When I was going through uh, that season of dark anxiety, I, I started like researching everybody I could find through Desiring God's website, through uh, Go- um, the Gospel Coalition's website, like trusted trusted solid theologians, counselors, and, and I came across this video, and it was the hardest thing for me was I would wake up in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, I would be afraid of everything, and I felt like if I didn't get up and just run or just walk, I felt like I was gonna explode. It was that, that it felt so physically oppressive. And I couldn't articulate to people what I was feeling. Not even my wife. And, and I remember coming across a, a, about a minute and a half video by Dr. Ed Welch, And in a minute and a half, he explained exactly what I was feeling. In that minute and a half, Dr. Ed Welch said, the reason anxiety exists is because you've created a world. The reason fear and anxiety exists is because in that moment, when you're most afraid, it's because you've created a world where only two things exist, you and the fear of losing something that you love. And he said, the only way out of that world is to invite God into it. And for the first time, what I realized is even as a pastor, as a devoted follower of Jesus, as someone who believes, he had helped me identify an area of unbelief because when it came to my anxiety, I was trying to handle it as if I was an atheist. I was trying to take matters into my own hands, fix my own fear, and deal with my own situation. But the only way out of that is not 
to fix it, the only way out of it is to run to God and let him do in and through me what I'm incapable of doing on my own. I gotta fight to invite God into this world that I've created that's surrounded by fear and anxiety. God was in control all along and even better than that, he was leading them to an epic oasis. They're like, I'm, this water's bitter and God's like, if you would just trust me, I got like an oasis waiting for y'all. I mean, I'm like, just trust me. We're going somewhere, I promise. I'll make good on my promise, I'll deliver. And this is exactly how God works in our life. When things seem to be difficult, we can't wrap our minds around how God's at work or how he could possibly be working in our difficult circumstances. We're oftentimes quick to start assessing our situation and questioning whether or not God is going to do what he said he would do. In our worst moments, like the Israelites, we can even begin to wish things would go back the way they were. But God wants more for us. He wants more for us. Have you ever been praying and you're so distracted that you might have started out talking to God, but halfway through the prayer, you're just talking to yourself now. You're not even talking to God anymore. You're just assessing. You're like figuring out your situation and you don't need God's help with that, which is why oftentimes we end prayers like that and don't feel impacted at all. It's a fight to make God first. It's a fight to go to him in prayer. It's a fight to make him central. It's a fight to invite him into our life. Because in that moment, what we're saying is, God, I yield control to you. That's a fearful place to be. But in the end, what we have to believe is this, is that if you want God to liberate you from your past, if I asked you that question, most of you would say, yes. Do you want God to liberate you from your past? You would say, yes. Then listen, if you want God to liberate you from your past, then you have to be willing to trust God with your future. If you want God to liberate you from your past, then you have to be willing to trust God with your future. You have to be willing to trust that God is better at controlling your life than you are. So let me give you a couple examples. If you want God to deliver you from your fear of financial hardship, then you have to be willing to trust God to spend your money, not you. People say all the time, they're like, man, I'm so afraid if I give that God's not gonna bless me. And I keep telling them, you'll be afraid until you put yourself in a position where God has to prove himself to you. You'll be afraid until you're willing to give that control over to God. So if you want God to deliver you from the fear of financial hardship, then you have to be willing to trust God to spend your money the way he wants to spend it. If you want God to deliver you from a broken relationship, then you have to be willing to trust God with the future of that relationship. And whatever he requires, whatever he asks, whatever needs to be done, you trust that he knows best. If you want God to deliver you from worry and anxiety, then you have to be willing to trust that God is better at controlling your life than you are. If you want God to deliver you from destructive choices and habits, then you have to be willing to trust God to make your choices for you. Do you know what obedience is? Obedience is not doing the things God asks you to do that you already wanted to do. That's not obedience. If I come home to my kids and I say, hey, listen, we're gonna do something different today. It's Wednesday, and no matter what I'm about to tell you, I want absolute obedience. We're not going to school today. We're eating pizza all day, and we're gonna play video games until you can't keep your eyelids open for one more second. If in that moment my kids go, yes! And they do exactly what I asked them to do. That's not obedience, that's agreement. You disagreed with me. But if they're in the middle of playing video games or doing something they want, and I come in and say, I want you to stop doing what you're doing and go clean your room, which is something they don't want to do, then they have a decision to make of whether or not they're going to obey me. Why? Because obedience is giving someone or something else permission to oppose your will. If you're going to trust God, it's gonna be, so drastic that you're willing to say, this is what I want to do, but this is what you're telling me to do. I give you permission, God, to oppose my will. If I feel it's right, but you say it's wrong, it's wrong. If I feel it's wrong, but you say it's right, it's right. 
We get this when it comes to physical exercise, eating. We get it in the physical realm. If you want to look good, be healthy, stay in shape, you got to get up early and hit the gym. And you got to give the alarm clock and your workout buddy permission to oppose your will. So when they start texting you at five in the morning to get up, I promise you, nothing's going to feel, nothing's going to feel more right in that moment than to roll over and go back to sleep. I'm telling you at five o'clock in the morning when my alarm's going off, I've never felt so right as when I shut that off and I roll back over again. That's as right as right could possibly feel. And yet we know that if we indulge that feeling, even if it feels so right to us, that we'll become slothful, lazy, unhealthy, and have a shortened life. So what do we do? We give workout, buddy. We give the alarm. We give them permission to oppose our will. We do this with food all the time. We do this with working out. We get it in the physical realm. What God's telling us is, I need you to get it in the spiritual realm. You may feel this is the right way to live your life, but I'm saying this, and I want to know that you're going to give me permission to oppose your will because you trust that I'm better at controlling your life than you are. This kind of trust is not something that we possess on our own. We'll see this over and over again in the Old Testament. Number three, finally, trusting God is a grace issue. It's not only a faith issue, it's not only a control issue, it's a grace issue. The Israelites are going to do this again and again. They're gonna keep complaining. You know what's gonna happen next? They're gonna get to the oasis. Keep reading. Exodus 16, you know what's gonna happen? God's gonna say, all right, let's do it. Come on. And they're gonna go, oh no, we're all set. We're all set. This oasis, sick. For real, like, we don't wanna leave this place. And God's thinking, y'all don't even know. I got the promised land waiting for you. A land flowing with milk and honey. This is just a little, little tidbit of something I got for you. This is a little something, a little snack on the way. And they can't bring themselves to trust God. They're going to keep doing this over and over and over again. And the reality is, apart from Christ, we'll keep doing it over and over and over again. But this is the point. This is not a story about how awesome these people are. This is a story about how faithful God is. This is why knowing that God is a covenant God is really good news because it's what helps us understand the nature of the God we worship. Namely, that he is a God that keeps his promises now and forever. All throughout the Bible, we see the contrast between the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of sinful people. But God is even at work in this using their continued unfaithfulness and the consequences that it brings to show them their need for a savior, to show them their need for a new kind of covenant. Look what he says in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. The prophet says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He says, you know what your problem is, Israel? You're trying to change your behavior and your behavior is never going to change because you don't need new behavior. You need a new heart. You need to be made new from the inside out. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And it's a good thing God keeps his promises because the way God makes good on this promise is by sending his son, Jesus. That's why when Jesus sits down with the disciples shortly before he goes to the cross and he celebrates communion with them, he says, this is the cup that is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. There's a new covenant. And in this covenant, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that none of us could live or would live. He lived the perfect life and God accepts his perfect life in place of our imperfect life. He died as a just 
penalty for all of our sin, was buried in our sin, and three days later raised from the dead to claim victory over sin, death, and the devil. And everyone who will repent, turn from their sin and self, and by grace through faith, run to God and accept his offer of salvation through Jesus, will be set free from their sin, forgiven, filled with his spirit, made right with God, and live with him now and forever. God's gonna do not only his side of the covenant, he's gonna jump in and fulfill our side of the covenant too. And all of it gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So this is our freedom. This is the, the, the breaking of our chains. It's not behavior modification or conforming to what we think is right. It's running to Jesus and saying he's the only thing that's right. And I bring myself, my life, my choices to him. We are, listen, we live on the other side of the cross, y'all. We, we are the beneficiaries of a new covenant. We are the ones who benefit through the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf for those who believe in Jesus as their salvation. We've been forgiven of our sins, filled with his spirit, enabling us to live the lives that we were created to live. That's why 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18 says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And where does the spirit of the Lord reside? in the hearts and lives of his people. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Have you ever just thought about this? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Romans 8, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. My anxiety, my fear, my brokenness may be greater than me, but it's not greater than he who lives within me. That challenges us at our core of what we're truly going to believe. We're either going to trust God or we're going to trust ourselves. We're really good at trusting ourselves. Quick question, how's that working for us? But when we trust God, when we trust his spirit within us, he leads us and guides us, helps us, directs us, convicts us, disciplines us. Every day, one degree of glory to the next. He says, and we are all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Jesus' work on the cross and the spirit's work in our life is proof that God keeps his promises. And it's also proof that we've been freed from our past. And by God's grace, we will be secure in our future. God can be trusted. Church, listen, he proved it yesterday. The question is, do you believe it today? He proved it could be trusted yesterday. The question is, are you going to believe it today? Even when everything seems to be out of control, we can trust that things are still going according to God's plan. In the darkest moment of human history, when Jesus was dead, the disciples were distraught. They thought everything had come to ruin. Three days later, Jesus didn't stay dead. Even though things seemed like they were out of control, everything was still going according to God's plan. If we believe this then any hardship we face, any doubts we encounter, or any other brokenness we incur, they're just more opportunities to trust God more, to repent of our unbelief, and to believe that God always keeps his promises. I'm gonna have the band go ahead and join me. Uh, I thought if this is helpful for you, so back in 2015, 2016, I didn't know what to do with all this anxiety that I was feeling. It was deeply rooted in being skeptical of people. Uh, I've, I believed with all my heart that people were disingenuous in their affection for me. So it didn't matter what they would say. It didn't matter how they would act. I was always suspicious that it was something else. And when you're suspicious of people, guess what they always do? It's crazy. They do suspicious things. I start projecting my thoughts on them, my mind on them. And it got so out of control. I had existed in this world where all that existed was me and the fear of losing something I loved, which I found out later was actually myself more than anyone. I'd lived in that world for so long, I'd created these trenches in my heart. Honestly, it felt like I was never going to get out. You know what Dr. Ed Welch says in one of his books, uh, which by the way, interesting enough, I was at a conference in Indianapolis this year, and I got to meet Dr. Ed Welch. And I went up, I was like, 
bro, you don't even know me, but I want to give you like a gigantic hug. You literally counseled me and never met me and walked me through one of the darkest seasons in my life, pointing me to Jesus all the way. But one of the things that he says, Dr. Ed Welch reminds us, is that we continually perpetuate our problem the more we listen to our fear. The more I engage it, the more I listen to it. And he said, and what happens is we become false prophets. Listen to me, you anxious people. We're false prophets, man. We predict in the future the way things are going to be, and we're never right. Think about how many times you've been wrong. (laughs) And then something happens. Something gets close enough to one of your predictions that you forget about the thousand times you've been wrong and you're convinced that you've always been right. And for years, I looked at my marriage as the one space that was safe, man. That's where I was. And God reminded me, hey, your wife can't be Jesus, bro. You'll you'll crush her beneath the weight of those kinds of expectations. And you'll always be disappointed because she'll never live up to that. And eventually, my anxiety had gotten so bad that it began to bring tension into my marriage. This one space that I thought was so good, the one kind of untouchable. If you asked me about every area of my life, I would have given you different numbers, but if you asked me about my marriage, I would say it's an 11. This is the one thing I got right. And I began to doubt my own wife. Never a reason, never an issue. Suddenly, I couldn't even trust that my wife was genuine in her affection for me. God began to break down my heart. I began to trust him more. First, God wanted me to know that I can trust other people. That was the first step, that you could trust God and you can trust other people. But he wanted to take me even further. He wanted to take me to a place where he would say, even if you can't trust other people, you can trust me and I'm enough. So I began to break those walls down. It was in the middle of this Exodus series that God began to give me insight and freedom into that. And so this is a journal entry from February 7th, 2016, I just want to be a little transparent with you about where my heart was. In Exodus 15 and 16, I wrote, the Israelites are being tested by God, pruned to help them learn to trust him more. This is that series of time when they have bitter water and God makes it sweet, then he takes them to the oasis, then they don't want to leave the oasis because they can't see and trust God that he's going to take them somewhere better. I wrote in here, I say pruned because Courtney, my wife, came home from an IF conference and shared how she felt God showed her that we were being pruned in our marriage. Not because there's no fruit, but because God wants greater fruit for us and from us. Listen to me, church, that's a good word, man. If you're being pruned, if you're going through it right now, it's not because you have no fruit. You don't prune dead trees. You know what you do with dead trees? You cut them down. You only prune trees that are producing fruit. Why would you prune them? Why would you cut them back so that they'll produce more fruit? So if you're being pruned, rest assured it's because God loves you. It's not because you're not producing. It's because you are and he wants you to produce more. I wrote, these chapters in Exodus are a great picture of this. I have oftentimes found myself asking God to just take away my anxiety and fear and just let us go back to the way things were. But God has been teaching me that the way things were may be better than the way they are, but they weren't nearly as good as the way they will be. I'm going to read that again. But God was teaching me that the way things were may be better than the way they are, but they weren't nearly as good as the way they will be. The Israelites no doubt questioned the wisdom and direction of leaving an epic oasis in the middle of the desert, embracing uncertainty in order to trust God's promise of something better. But once they arrived in the promised land, I'm sure they looked back at that dinky little oasis and thought, remember when we thought that was as good as it could get. This is the promise God has given all of his people and it's certainly true in our marriage. I wrote, we often give the example when teaching young couples that what their marriage could be from what it is now is as far as a tree is from a seed. Perhaps another analogy could be as far as Egypt is from the promised land. 
And there will be plenty of oases along the way. But don't get comfortable yet. There is still much farther to go. And when you get in those moments where it seems like it just can't get any better than this, remember, you haven't seen anything yet. Thank you, God, for not letting us settle for a couple trees in the desert when you have a land flowing with milk and honey prepared for us. A prayer for you is that you would hear this, and that you would begin to realize not only is God a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, not only is he good and can be trusted to deliver you from your past, but since he can be trusted to deliver you from your past, he can also be trusted to secure you in your future. So trust him. Through faith, by grace, trust him. And let God do with your life what you would otherwise be incapable of doing on your own. We're going to sing a song of worship. And as we do, Pastor John said that this morning the pastors at Redemption Hill are going to make themselves available down here. There might be some of you, I know it's hot, but there might be some of you that just want someone to pray with them. Want someone to hear their story and pray over them. And so if that's you, even while we sing, you can come down and you can meet with one of those pastors and they would love to pray for you. And so I'm going to pray for you now. The band's going to play. The pastors are going to join us. And you can respond however you feel like God is leading you to respond. God, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you that you are a God that can be trusted, that you were a covenant-keeping God then. You're still a covenant-keeping God. Jesus Christ is the proof. So I pray we would believe that. I pray we would trust that. I pray we would know that. I pray that we would believe that, that we would cling to that, God. I pray we become a people who believe that you are better at controlling our lives than we are, that we would give you permission to oppose our will, and that we would trust you to do with us and in us and through us whatever you see fit for your glory and for the good of others. God, I pray for those that are struggling with fear or anxiety. They're struggling with trusting you in their finances, with their life and their relationships. I pray they would trust you, God. I pray they trust that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And that, God, you and you alone are worthy of their trust. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says that we're to trust the Lord with all our heart, lean not into our own understanding. Acknowledge him in all of our ways and he will make our path straight. God, if we're ever going to trust you with all of our heart, then we first have to believe that you can be trusted with our heart. I pray we'd be a people that would trust you with our hearts. And God, we pray all these things now in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.